the questions I want to address as we walk through our message on this beautiful Easter morning is how can we possibly hold on to or what can we grasp to give us hope for the present and hope for the future? What can I grab a hold on to that will give me help in the present and help for tomorrow in the time to come? Especially in the midst of the chaos we experience in our world. I don't know if you've paid attention out there, but things are a little nuts, aren't they? There's a lot of trouble in the world. There's fear gripping the hearts of so many. Anger and hatred being fomented at every turn, everywhere you look. And we find ourselves many times going through this life and it feels like the ground underneath us is shifting. It's shaking and we are trying to find our footing in all of this. So what is it that we need to look for to? What is it that we need to grab a hold of when this is what we're dealing with in life? Well, it's no surprise that that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And that hope that we're looking to and the very thing that we're going to grab a hold of is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the resurrection of Christ is the central hinge event of human history. And it provides for each and every one of us who place our faith in Jesus Christ an unshakable anchor in a world of chaos and trouble. It also provides for us the unshakable peace that our souls long for. So my hope today is as we rehearse the events of the resurrection morning, we'll be captivated once again by the power of the resurrection and that we'll be encouraged by the pattern of the gospel that we see present in the story here in Matthew's gospel. And may our faith in Christ deepen and our devotion and worship of our risen Lord increase today. So we're in the 28th chapter of Matthew. We're going to look at this passage, the first 10 verses in two sections. The first there is going to be the events of the women who came to the tomb and received the wondrous news of the risen Christ. And the second portion of this passage, we're going to look at the encounter they had with the risen lords. Matthew 28, verse 1. Hear the words of the living God. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. These are the words of the Lord. The events of that morning indicate to us that this is happening after the Sabbath. We had the events of Good Friday, his crucifixion. There was Saturday, and now this is the first day of the week, Sunday, and it's after the Sabbath. We see here that the resurrection marks the foundation of why the church selected Sunday, the first day of the week, to be this new day of worship, a practice we continue to this day. The resurrection is that hinge moment of history. And we find the first cast of characters now in Matthew's account of the resurrection. We see two women roll up to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, it's not like he didn't know who the other Mary was. 
the end of the previous chapter tells us that this is Mary, the mother of James, the mother of Joseph. But let's not get them confused. There's two Marys here, right? And they show up here to the tomb. Now, this is extraordinary on so many levels. We have uh, been in the middle, for those of you who are guests today, been in the middle of a series going through the pastoral epistles, and we've been talking about in 1 Timothy uh, this aspect of the role of women in the church. And the fact that women are listed here as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection is absolutely groundbreaking and revolutionary, considering the culture of that time. In this ancient culture, women were not valued that greatly. In fact, their testimony had very little value. In serious uh, judicial cases, uh, a woman was not found to be a credible witness. She was not reliable. Therefore, her testimony would be uh, inadmissible. And this was Roman law. But here we find all of the gospel writers give this account of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection And they were women. Now, Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, argued vehemently against the resurrection. And one of the proofs uh, he consistently gave as to why the resurrection story was phony was the fact that the first eyewitnesses were women. Because they were women, their testimony was not to be believed. His argument was basically, well, who was it? that said that the tomb was empty? And and, and who was it that made the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Women? (sighs) Enough said. Forget that junk, you know. That's kind of the argument, but that's what they believed in that time. Now, men, you should not amen any of this. It'll get you in trouble later, right? (laughs) Women's testimony is valuable, and this is what's happening here. Truthfully, there is simply no good reason why these gospel writers would include this list of women as eyewitnesses if they were going to concoct a tale that Jesus rose from the dead, right? You you don't fake a resurrection and then place these women at the scene. If you wanted them to be credible witnesses, you would have named men, James and Andrew or John and and Peter. But but no, we, we find women mentioned here. The other gospel writers list a few other ladies, a handful of women who came out on this Sunday morning and were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. The only reason that all four gospel writers include this list of women in there is that they were actually reporting events that actually happened. This is historical fact. This is how the events unfolded. If they were fabricating the story, they didn't do a very good job here. Not only because they didn't list, they they listed women here, but also how they portrayed themselves. The disciples don't come across as the heroes of the story, do they? Where are the disciples in this moment? They're in hiding, right? They're cowering in fear. All of them abandoned Jesus forsook him at his hour of greatest need. And now we have women coming to the tomb. No. These women are the ones who become the first messengers that Jesus sends. This is a reflection of the gospel's power to transcend all of these cultural norms and restrictions. Jesus reveals himself first to these women. This is a profoundly theological purpose and reason for why this is included here because the gospel is not just for men the gospel is for women it's for children it wasn't only for the jews it was also for the greeks for the gentiles for all kinds of people jesus died this is also the pattern of how god chooses because god does What he does here is the the pattern for how he chooses the weak and foolish and despise things of the world. To shame those who consider themselves strong and wise. There is no room for boasting when it comes to the gospel. There is no room for us to get any glory or credit when it comes to salvation. For Jesus didn't choose a man to be the first eyewitness. He chose these faithful women. God chose the schoolyard rejects, and he still chooses 
the schoolyard rejects and does glorious things in and through them. Don't ever say God can't use me. Don't ever say I don't have anything to offer. I am nothing special. I mean, God used these women who no doubt upon going back, many would, 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 would just discount what they were saying, would, would ignore it, would, would put it down, would tell them that they're smoking crack or something. There's no way that this could happen. We know that not all the disciples believed immediately. Right? That's why we have the story of Thomas. But here's the thing. God doesn't choose us because we are special or valuable. He, he doesn't choose us because we bring something amazing in, to the table, that we have something marvelous to offer God that he does not possess or have and that he needs from us. No, God doesn't choose you because you're special. He chooses us because he's special. Because he is glorious. Because in us, the weak and foolish things of the world, God gets, God gets to display this treasure of Christ and his glorious gospel and redemption in these busted up vessels, jars of clay. That's what he does. So all the credit goes to him. All of the glory is his and his alone. Now Matthew tells us that they're coming to see the tomb. What is it that they're coming to see? Right? He writes in, in the gospel of, of Mark, uh, he writes that they're coming to bring spices to anoint the body of Jesus. What are they going to the tomb for? Well, they're not going to the tomb expecting a risen Christ. No, they're, they're going to the tomb because they're expecting a corpse, a, a very dead Jesus. Now, it's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, several times Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen. Like, this should not have been a mystery. He tells them, boys, here's what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed for three days. Meet me in Galilee. I'm going to rise from the dead. He doesn't just tell them once. He doesn't tell them twice. Three times. Mark's gospel lists five times. There's other inferences where this is what Jesus is alluding to. He's going to be killed, but he is going to rise again. But where are the disciples? And certainly, what were these ladies expecting? Right? We don't find all the disciples rushing to the tomb, expecting it to be empty. For if they really believed that, right, they would have obeyed Jesus and met him in Galilee, as he said. But the disciples don't show up. Again, they're hiding. What we find is these women coming to the cemetery, this handful of women, to anoint a dead body with spices. These women are in a state of grief. They are mourning. They have experienced a great loss that only someone who's lost a loved one truly knows. They're coming with a deep ache of soul. I can only imagine their conversation as, as they're on their way. Talking about the events that they had just witnessed. Talking about the great impact that Jesus had on their life. How could it be that he is gone? That he is dead? Truth is, as you read this story, you, you need to know that the resurrection wasn't even on their radar. It should have been, but it, but it wasn't. Much like us today, we have all these promises that God has made us for us, but we still doubt. We still walk with uncertainty. We're, we're still fearful. We still disbelieve. These things should be on our radar. But the cares of this world and life and anxiety and all these things cause that to vanish. And this is where they find themselves. They are approaching the tomb with all of the impending dread one experiences when confronted with death. Their beloved Jesus was brutally killed before their eyes. While every disciple had abandoned Jesus, these ladies were there at the foot of the cross. They witnessed the crucifixion scene. They watched Jesus in his anguish in excruciating agony on the cross. 
They watched him breathe his last breath. They watched the soldier plunge his spear into Christ's side to prove that he was good and dead. They watched as his body was taken down. They watched this this hasty burial in the tomb. And they made note of where Jesus was laid. And now the Sabbath was passed. They are going to perform the necessary rites of burial preparation. They're going to perfume and anoint the corpse of Christ as an act of love and devotion. But we know the story here. What happens? They come upon the tomb and they discover that the stone is rolled away. I love how in Matthew's gospel, he kind of gives us this little flashback scene. I normally hate flashbacks in movies and drives me crazy when like when a whole show is flashbacks. But, but this is a flashback because they come to the scene. The stones roll away. Matthew says, here's what happens. There's a great earthquake. But he doesn't attribute this to anything natural. This is a supernatural occurrence. An angel of the Lord shows up. He's the cause of this earthquake. And that several hundred pound stone that was, that was covering the entrance of that tomb is rolled back. And an angel is sitting up there waiting for these ladies. Now we're told what happens to the guards that were supposedly watching over this tomb. I mean, the fear of, of the Jews and the Romans was that the disciples were going to steal the body of Jesus in the middle of the night. And then they were going to claim that he rose from the dead. So they're trying to eliminate that possibility. They have guards stationed there. But the, at the appearance of this, this magnificent, a brilliant being, they, they play dead, right? They, they faint. They pass out. They are in terror and fear. And after soiling their underpants, we see in the other gospel accounts that they take off, right? right? But the women arrive and, and they come upon this angelic being dressed in white robes and just gleaming in brilliant light. And they're also terrified. And and we would be as well, right? But what does the angel say to these women? He says, do not be afraid. And then he tells them immediately why they don't need to be afraid. He's like, I know you're coming to look for the body of Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here. He has risen, just as he said he would and then he's like come take a look for yourself and then immediately go and tell his disciples to meet him in galilee and there they will see him end of message right angel means messenger that's exactly what he comes to do he delivers the message and what do they do they take off now i love that this message of the angel has has three parts to it And I just want to look at them briefly here. But first, what does the angel do? He reminds them of Jesus' prophetic claim. He's going to die, but he is going to rise from the dead. And it happened exactly as Jesus said it would happen. That means everything Jesus claimed about himself has to be true by virtue of this resurrection reality. If he rose from the dead like he said... He would, then what does that mean for every other claim he's made? That he is God, that he is the Lord of glory. That his death would redeem us. That we would have forgiveness of sins by virtue of his blood being shed for us. He said he would rise on the third day. That means he truly did defeat our greatest enemy, death. That salvation that he came to accomplish through his death, he has won. Do not be afraid. Stop fearing, ladies. Don't fear and start rejoicing. Now, I wonder how many of us go through life in a state of fear, anxious about what tomorrow might bring, despairing over situations in life because we do not realize the impact of the resurrection. We don't fully grasp the implications it has for our very life. If Jesus rose from the dead, that absolutely changes everything. That has implications for our life. For how we live it, how we go about life. What do we have to fear if Jesus rose from the dead? What what do we have to be anxious about? 
If Jesus triumphed over the grave, conquered our enemy, defeated our foe, what do we have to fear? He sits enthroned in majesty. The one whose reign is universal, his throne immovable, his power absolute. And he has promised, brothers and sisters, that all those who belong to them, he will see them all the way through to glory. What do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to fear in this life? I mean, I think about the times when Jesus said, right, if you if you hold on to your life, if you keep it, you'll lose it. But if you lose it, you'll be saved. Why? Because if our life is in him then our life really is of little consequence in his hands. Because he's keeping it. He's securing it. And eternal life in him is guaranteed. Look to the resurrected Christ. Do not be afraid and rejoice he is alive. The second part of the angel's address is this. Concerns the evidence. Because he's saying he's risen just as he said he was. And then he says, come take a look for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Peer into the empty tomb. See it with your own eyes. The body is not there. This eyewitness account, what they went back to the disciples claiming here, was not something that was done by blind faith. The evidence of the resurrection was right there before their eyes. Undeniable proof in unoccupied tomb. They didn't happen upon the wrong tomb. They didn't make a mistake. Every gospel writer takes into account this reality that they watched where he was laid. It's not like they got it mixed up and went to somebody else's, you know, unoccupied tomb, right? No, they knew where they were going. They were in the right place looking for the right person, but he wasn't there. He was risen. Can you imagine how their faith was strengthened in that moment? Still afraid, but... Now, something is now rising up in them in this moment where this courage grows in them to begin to testify of what they have just witnessed. The resurrection account is real. And no one in this room and no one on the face of the earth can ignore the historical reality of this hinge event of human history. We don't have time to go through all of the the proofs or all the things we could walk through here. I've done that in years past. But I just begin to think of this amazing community that, that is formed on the other side of the resurrection. A community of both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles that were fueled and consumed by the reality of the resurrection. This, this claim, this proclamation that Jesus was alive, that he rose from the dead. What a crazy thing to have happen if these events weren't true. Think about how within two centuries, this message spreads throughout the entire known world. There's no rational explanation for the rapid growth and spread of Christianity and the gospel to the known world. Why would these people who had no expectation of the resurrection, be willing to invest their lives so fully and be willing to pay the ultimate price in their blood to, to, to proclaim this message if it was all a myth. That's insanity. It's crazy. Think of all of Jesus' disciples, the, hor- the horrific deaths that every one of them faced for their belief in the resurrection. And for their proclamation of Jesus. We all need to examine the claims and teachings of Christ for ourselves. You and I need to peer into the empty tomb for ourselves. Because if the resurrection is true. Then Jesus is exactly who he said he is. Exactly who he claimed to be. And that means that I must give him my fullest allegiance. Not to anything else, but to Christ alone. Again, thinking about Thomas. Thomas didn't believe the message when the ladies came back. He thought they were crazy. What does he say? I, I've got to see it with my own eyes. I, I want to take my finger and stick it in Jesus' wounds. 
If I can touch his physical body, then I'll believe. And what happens? Like Jesus passes through the wall, you know, shows up in the room, and he's like, hey, Thomas, here I am. Come on. Stick it, you know. Touch my hands. Touch my side. See for yourself. And what uh, Thomas is like, oh, I see him now. Yeah, they were right. I believe. And Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Like that's us today. We haven't seen him with our physical eyes. I thank God that one day we will have that sight to behold him. But by faith, we have apprehended him. By faith, we have seen him and believed. And we're blessed because of that. And because of that, our only response is allegiance, obedience, and worship. Third portion of the angel's message here, he commissions them. He commissions them to announce the resurrection to Jesus' disciples. Go tell the boys the good news. What an honor was given to these women to take the news to the disciples. And this would not have been an easy task, as we've said. Some of them would not believe. But they're emboldened by what they have seen for themselves. You cannot witness an event like that and remain unchanged. Theirs was a response of immediate obedience. There was no hesitation. I don't see them as you normally see with some ladies when they get together. They'd be like, choo, 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 choo. You know, that's not happening there, right? What do they do? They run off. They, they, they take off immediately, fearful and joyful. They go to tell the message of the risen Lord to the disciples. And you and I need this fresh reminder of the resurrection. Because you and I need boldness and courage to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Well, at the very least, to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our neighbors. We need that courage. And nothing gives courage than to know that Jesus rose from the dead. We need to announce the resurrection. Well, the angel now tells them here that Jesus has gone on ahead into Galilee. Galilee was the place where Jesus called almost all of his disciples. It was his hub of ministry, base of operations. Just three days before the resurrection, while he was at Passover with his disciples, he tells them, after I am raised upon up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, in the point of that story is where, Jesus, where Peter, you know, the big mouth, immediately says, No, no, you're not going to die. I'm going to take care of you. Or at the very least, I'm going to die with you. I'm willing to do it. And what does Jesus say? <laughs> you know, deny me. Three times. And all the other disciples pipe up. We can't just blame Peter. We're going to blame them all here because they're all like, No, we'll die for you too. We will never deny you. And what's the very thing they do? Deny him. Where's the very place they do not go? Galilee, right? They don't do anything Jesus told them to do here. But I, I love that, that this is in here. Because they forgot to get themselves to Galilee and wait for Jesus. But Jesus had already predicted every single thing that was going to happen. This is a reminder to all of us here that the events surrounding, all of the details surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are things that are under the sovereign control of our Savior. Nothing happened by accident. Nothing happened by chance. Nothing was done to Jesus. No, these are all things that were perfectly executed and calculated from before the foundation of the world. A detail that is mind-boggling to all of us here. But if he is sovereignly in control of those things, you and I can be confident that he is in sovereign control of everything in this world. Another reason not to be afraid. Well, they encounter Jesus on the way. In obedience to the angel, they're making their way to Galilee to tell the disciples. And what do we find? The scripture say, says, behold, right? Look, right? This is a point of exclamation. Jesus met them. He met them. Oh, those three words are so 
profound. They are a summary of the glorious power and pattern of the gospel. It is the grace of our Lord. He meets them. He meets us. First in the incarnation. He comes to us in bodily form in the likeness of human flesh to dwell among us. And he meets us here in salvation. It is Christ who takes the initiative in saving. He doesn't, if he doesn't meet us, we will never meet him. This is the hope. This is the comfort and foundation of the church. Jesus meets his people. Do you know he's meeting with us right now? Gathering with God's people is no casual, inconsequential thing. He is with his people. He meets with us. His presence is with us. He's the head of his church. Which is his bride. Those he's redeemed by his blood. And we who are part of his church. Are only a part of his church. Because the Lord has met us. The emphasis here in Matthew's account. Is is all on Christ. And it's all on his actions. For this is the ministry of Christ. He himself said he came to seek and save that which is not found, but lost. He came to seek and save the lost. I have news for you. You don't find Jesus. He's not lost. You are. I was. He finds us. He meets us. He finds us dead in our filth and sin. He he finds us in our wretched condition and he meets us right as we are, just as we are. But no one remains the same after Jesus meets them. It's impossible to remain untransformed after an encounter like that. What happens when Jesus meets you? When Jesus meets you, you experience a spiritual rebirth. You experience a spiritual resurrection from the dead to new life in him. You and I worship and serve a savior who meets sinners on the way. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that he met you on the way? When he came into my life, when, when he met me, I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't seeking Jesus. I know the angel tells the ladies here, you come to seek Jesus, but they were seeking a dead Jesus, not a risen one. But I wasn't seeking him, and I know many of you have that same testimony. You're going about your life. You're wallowing in your sin. You're doing what you always do, engaging in in your, your depraved lifestyle, and then Jesus meets you. And when Jesus meets you, you are never the same again. And when he met me as a, as, as a young man, as a teenager, my life was radically transformed. It was a night and day difference. I could not remain the same. I could not continue in the things that I was engaging in and doing after having encounter with the risen Lord. He meets us. And he saves us and delivers, delivers us gloriously. Now, I will say this as an aside. We have a perfect Savior who saves imperfect people. I'm going to say this. There's a lot of guests in our room today. And I I don't know if you're faithfully part of a church out there. But I know so many say, I I don't want to be part of a church. That's full of hypocrites. Amen. It is. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Every place is. But we just like to say only the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, it's full of imperfect people. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God and in the process of of being sanctified and conformed to Christ. I I know there's church hurt and I know some people have been abused in churches and spiritually abused uh, in churches. I, I get it. But I don't want you to just focus on the flaws and imperfections of the people that are part of the church of Jesus Christ. Because that's easy to do because there are many flaws. There are many imperfections. I'll admit there's a lot of wackadoodles in the church, right? You know, um, not in this room in, or other places, right? <laughs> right? The other, the other churches, right? I get that. 
what I want you to focus is not on the imperfect people that make up the church, but to focus on the perfect Savior. You're always going to find something wrong with people. But I ask you, what wrong will you find in Christ? There's nothing wrong in Him. There's no imperfection in Him. There's nothing flawed in Him. He's the beautiful Savior of the church, and He's the head of His church. And He said He will build His church. And that He is, is conforming His church to His holiness. That we will be presented before Him as a church, as a bride, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Right? That's His job. Right? We're going to be faithful to the Lord, but we're still walking through our mess won't you join us? <laughs> then what does Jesus say? So, so he encounters them on the way and he's like, hey, ladies, right? It says greetings. That seems so formal, right? He, he knew them and they knew him. And, right? but, but on the way here, right, he meets them with one word, greetings, greetings, right? Now, the Greek word used here is, is, is a customary greeting uh, of that time. It's, it's like wishing a person well-being, wishing them good health, right, and, and happiness, basically. It's a common expression. Like if, if I said to you, hey, man, I wish you well. I, 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 I wish for you to be in good health. Right? That's, in essence, what, what this greeting is here, right? It's not just, hey, or, or hello, right? It, it, it's, it, Jesus is saying here, like, be glad, rejoice, be well. I wish you well. The, the difference here is the one who's saying this. Because I can wish you well all I want. I can wish you good health all I want. I can wish you happiness all I want. The problem is I have zero power to deliver that. But this, this is the resurrection and the life who's speaking here. This is the resurrection and the life who comes upon these two women and says, I wish you well. How can they not be after that? How can they not be after an encounter with the risen Christ? These women who had previously been overcome with deep sorrow. Hear this one word from our Savior. Be well. And their sorrow turns into joy. One word from Jesus. One word is all you need. One word from Jesus is all you need to turn sorrow into what? Joy. Right? Despair into what happens here. Worship. Fear is taken away. It's removed from them. The Lord has spoken and he's right before their eyes. Now we know the power of a word and many times we experience it right in the negative. How destructive one word from someone can be or damaging and painful and hurt. We've, many of us have been the recipients of that. A word that has so devastated our life. Maybe it was spoken to you by, by a parent, your mom or your dad, or maybe your spouse or, or someone you really cared about. Right? That one word devastates you. But one word from Jesus, how much good does that do? One word uh, is, is life-giving and life-altering. There's so many voices in this world that are, are speaking words continually. Right? And, and, and again, th these words bring fear and sorrow and despair. They're harsh words. They're critical words. They're judgmental words. But a word from Jesus quiets all of that mess. A, a word from Jesus fills us with peace. A word from Jesus can change the trajectory of your life and my life. And Christ's resurrection is proof positive that a word from Jesus can bring about every single thing he has promised. Our justification, our sanctification, and our future glorification. Everything to make us truly well. Because he lives, every word of Christ is sure and true. Every single one of his words is one you and I can stake our life upon. And this response we see from the Marys here should be the response of every person who encounters Jesus, the ones he meets on the way. What do they do? They fall on the ground. They grab a hold of his legs, his feet, and they worship. They worship. The only real response to meeting King Jesus 
is to cling to him and worship him. Now, this tells me a lot of things, right? First of all, Jesus has a real physical body. There's a lot of people who claim it wasn't a real physical. It was, it was more of a spiritual resurrection. No, no, it was a real physical resurrection, right? They could wrap their arms around Jesus, and they don't want to let him go. And neither would you. Like, they're clinging to him for dear life here. They don't want him to leave, and they are worshiping him. And I see this picture, and I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, this is how we should be. This should be the posture of our life. Cling to Jesus. Do not let him go and worship him alone. He's the only one worthy of this. Grab hold of him. Grab hold of him and do not let him out of your grasp. How do we do that? Well, we cling to him when we trust him. We cling to him when we are looking to him alone for our salvation. Where we recognize there's no amount of good works that will ever make me righteous in the sight of God. There's nothing I can do to be reconciled to God of my own efforts. Your church attendance can't do it. Your Bible reading can't do it. Your praying can't do it. Only Jesus Christ can reconcile you to the Father. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that our sins are forgiven. You can't do that. Here we had Holy Week and you hear the stories in other countries. What are people doing in these acts of trying to sanctify themselves and make themselves holy and righteous? They're actually crucifying themselves to crosses. What a foolish act. Their blood is meaningless. Their blood cannot atone for their own sins, nevertheless for the sins of the rest of humanity. Only Christ can do that. We cling to him when we place our faith in him and him alone. We cling to him when we cling to the gospel and the gospel's promises in every aspect of our life. He is the only sure and steady anchor for our souls. We trust the work he has accomplished in our behalf. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And we cling to Jesus when we believe that in faith. But having said that, here is a promise of great importance to us. And I want you to hear me. Don't miss this. I'm telling you to cling to Jesus. But our grasp of Jesus is weak. It is feeble. It is is subjective. It's shifting. It's unstable. It's failings. There are some moments when I don't feel like clinging to Jesus. But his grip on us, his grip is unrelenting. He will never let you go. Jesus said, nothing, no one, nothing, no power in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can ever snatch you out of the Father's hands. What a glorious promise for us. Nothing can ever pry you loose from the grasp of our Savior. What a comfort that is. If your sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, not even your future sins can unmoor you from the secure anchor of Christ's lavish grace and love and his ironclad grip on our lives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for that. So take comfort, dear saint. Right? It is well with your soul if you've trusted Christ. Because a word from Christ changes everything. So cling to him in faith. Worship him. He is the supreme object of worship. There is nothing else. If you worship anything else, that's an idol. Worship Christ alone. All of your affection must go to the Son of God. Well then, Jesus says to them exactly what the angel said. Do not be afraid and go Proclaim this message to the guys, right? Tells them the same thing here. This command, do not be afraid and fear not. It is one of the most repeated commands in all of scripture. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why is it that that is commanded over and over again in scripture? Because we're fearful. We have to be told to not be afraid because we are afraid. We are prone to fear 
in our life. We need to hear these words. So many Christians I, I, I talk to and counsel, and what I, I hear is fear in their life. They're paralyzed by fear. But we have this command thundered to us over and over again from our Lord. Do not be afraid. And he's telling them because they need to be reassured. He's alive. Because he's alive, they're not to fear. They belong to him. They are his. When we know that we're in Christ, when we know that we are secure in him and we belong to him, and that he doesn't lose us, right? He doesn't let go of us, and we're we're freed from the tyranny of fear. We don't hold so tightly to our lives. And some of us here in this room, if you were honest, you'd say, no, I've got a pretty good grip on my own life. I, I can't fully trust God with my life because you're afraid. You think that you are in control, but you're not as in control as you think you are. <laughs> there are so many things beyond our control in this life but he has control over all things there's nothing that happens in this universe apart from god nothing at all and if that troubles your theology good it's okay god is sovereign we're to trust him he can say do not be afraid because when we trust him right fear evaporates when we're looking to him And he tells them, don't be afraid for another reason also. They have a task to accomplish. There is a mission. He is sending them on. And and they don't want to let go of him, right? They they don't want him to leave. So they're gripping him. and, And he's like, hey, don't be afraid. You need to go and tell the disciples. He's commissioning them to proclaim the good news. Just like he's commissioned all of us. Why do we not need to fear? Well, because our Savior rose from the grave and you and I are to go and tell others about that as well. This commission was not just for these early disciples. The commission isn't just for those in vocational ministry, the pastors or elders of a church. This this commission to proclaim the good news is for every single believer. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. And when you proclaim to the world Jesus is Lord and nothing and no one else is, that is going to set you in opposition to the world. So you better believe we need to hold fast to this promise to not be afraid. But I want you to notice something in closing here. He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. And this is perhaps one of my favorite parts of the resurrection account, not just here, but in several of the other gospel accounts as well. He says, go and tell my brothers. This is the first time in the gospels where Jesus directly calls his disciples brothers. There's other parts where he makes an allusion. He says, hey, everyone who does the will of my father they are my brothers and they are my brothers. It's, it's said in a general way. And he's called the disciples, his disciples, his servants. He even calls them his friends. But, but he says, go and tell my brothers. It's such an intimate term. He's calling the disciples here. And I can only imagine what's going through the Mary's heads at this moment. Your brother's. Those doofuses that denied you? Those guys that abandoned you and took off running in in fear? Those guys who forsook you in your moment of greatest need, just when you needed them, they were gone? Those guys? Your brothers? And we'd think the same thing, wouldn't we? How do you call them brothers? What a grievous sin they committed against our Lord by neglecting him, abandoning him, denying him, rejecting him, not willing to stand by him. Oh, every one of them talked a big game, didn't they? Oh, we're going to die for you, Jesus. We'll take a bullet for you. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee 
they will see me. Those are my brothers. Go tell them they're still my brothers. In another gospel, Peter is singled out. Go tell Peter. Go tell Peter. Just in case the other disciples would have excluded Peter. Like, dude, you really blew it. We denied him once. You denied him three times. You know? Yeah, go, go, go even tell Peter. They're my brothers. They're still my brothers, and they are going to see me. The, the grace of God. The brotherhood cannot be destroyed because the grace of God is anchored at the cross. And it's anchored in the empty tomb in this resurrection story. As one pastor put it, they, can, they could not unbrother themselves from the brotherhood of Christ. And they tried, didn't they? They rejected him. They denied him. They abandoned him. And he says, you're still my brothers. Go and tell them they're still mine. And to meet me in Galilee. Well, where's Galilee? Galilee's the first place they met him. Tell them to meet me where I first met them. Where I first called them to follow me. And I'll restore them to right relationship with me. Oh, God's grace. It's, it's beyond amazing to consider that even when we've been so pitiful and weak and unfaithful, Christ still says to us, you're still my brother. You are still my sister. What assurance for us. What, what, what security. This is the grounds of our assurance. We will see him because our salvation is grounded in his faithfulness, not ours. His faithfulness. And in our unworthiness, he makes us worthy and receives us as his brothers. That's sovereign grace. That is the grace and love of our Lord. Do you know him? Do you believe him? Have you met him? Has Jesus met you? I implore you today, be reconciled to God Through his son Jesus Christ. Know him. Trust in him. And these promises of eternal life. And salvation. And deliverance are yours. The resurrection ensures that everything. Everything God has promised us. In Christ. Is and will be ours. It's that old familiar hymn says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Christ is risen, brothers and sisters.